0: choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things not because they are easy but because they are hard
1: got speed, john glenn roger zero g and i feel fine okay, my feet out. okay i'm out how does it feel for the united states to be the new record holder at last huh when that baby light
2: Hello and welcome. This is Michael and You're listening to episode 266 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Houston, we've had a problem.
1: 13, we've got one more item for you when you get a chance. We'd like you to uh, stir up your cryo tanks. Okay, stand
2: by. As Lovell prepared for the thruster adjustments... Hayes finished closing down the limb and drifted through the tunnel back toward the command module and swaggered through the switch to stir all four cryogenic tanks. Back at mission control, ECOM Cy LiberGott, and his backroom crew monitored their screens waiting for the stabilization in hydrogen pressure that should follow the stir. In the 16 seconds following the beginning of the cryo stir The astronauts of Apollo 13 were executing their next maneuvers and awaiting additional commands when a bang-woomph-shudder shook the ship. Swigert strapped himself into his seat, feeling the spacecraft quake beneath him. Lovell, moving about the command module, felt a thunderclap rumble through him. Hayes, still in the tunnel, actually saw its walls shift around him. It was like nothing they had ever experienced before. Here's Fred Hayes recalling the explosion.
0: At the time of the explosion, we had essentially finished uh, a work day and are fixing a bed down, and the next morning uh, we are going to get up and go in the lunar orbit and prepare to go land. So that was the next day's schedule. And we had done a TV show, uh, kind of show and tell, where we pulled out objects that we knew had not been talked about and uh, I was actually putting things away after the TV show when this happened. And Jack, who was all alone up in the mothership, the command of service module, was asked to stir the cryos, which is to throw a switch that stirs like little egg beaters, if you think about it, in the, in the cryogenic uh, tanks. They had an explosion in one of the two tanks, tank two. And uh, that was... Uh, uh, where I was still in the landing craft, it was a loud bang through this metal structure. Uh, and very quickly, Jim was with me, Jim Lovell, the commander, and he already headed up to the uh, command module. And I followed, and uh, there was some motion between the vehicles. That was a twisting motion that caused a crinkling of metal in that tunnel where the two vehicles were connected. But that settled out even before I got through the tunnel and into the right seat and uh very quickly surveying the panel realized by several instrument readings that we had lost tank two so the motion right then was just a sickening feeling in a pit of my stomach
2: Lovell's first impulse was to be upset with hayes this had to be hayes and his repress vow once maybe the joke was funny but three times no, even allowing for a rookie's misplaced exuberance. This was pushing things too far. The commander turned toward the tunnel to find the eyes of his crewmen and scald them with his angry glare. But when the two men's glances locked, it was Lovell who was brought up short. Hayes' eyes were huge, unexpected, saucer-wide and white on all sides. These weren't the crinkly merry eyes of someone who had just gotten off another good one at the expense of the boss and was awaiting a smiling rebuke. Rather, these were the eyes of someone who was frightened. It wasn't me. Hayes croaked out in answer to the commander's unasked question.
0: Yeah, the lim- this, this was not a trick I played uh, just doing it on my own. Through the limb activation our shut down normally. While we were on a test run or something, there was a valve called the repress valve, and when you cycle that valve, it made a bang, and which, and if you imagine we're in metal structures, uh, it tended to echo and magnify. Maybe who who heard it, what they thought it might be. So uh, no, it, Jim thought I played that trick in both the chamber test and uh, one other test on the ground not informed him that I was fixing to throw the repress out. Uh, so Jim, I think, was hoping uh, that's, uh, that's what I had done again.
2: Lovell turned to his left to look at Swigert, but he didn't know what happened. But over Swigert's head, high up in the center section of the command module's console, an amber warning light flashed on. Simultaneously, an alarm sounded in Hayes's headphone and another warning light on the right side of the instrument panel where the electrical systems were monitored began to glow as well. Swigert checked the panels and saw there appeared to be an abrupt and inexplicable loss of power on Main Bus B, one of the main power distribution panels that together provided electricity to all the hardware in the command module. If one bus lost power, it meant that half the systems in the spacecraft could suddenly go dead.
1: Okay, Houston, uh, Houston we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Yes, sir. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. We've had a main B bus undervolt. Roger, main B undervolt. Okay, stand by, 13, we're looking at it.
2: Cy Librigott heard this exchange and like all the other controllers in the room immediately started to scan his console even before he could however a voice screamed into his headset "What's the matter with the data ecom?" It was Larry Sheeks one of the 3 men in ecom's back room who monitored environmental readings and helped Librigott manage any anomalies Following Sheeks the voice of George Bliss, another ECOM engineer, piped in. We've got more than a problem. Libregat looked over his monitor and his breath caught. Everywhere it seemed his readouts had gone into the tank. These aren't the numbers you get on a real flight, he thought. These are the implausibly bad numbers some smart little Simsup sent you during training when he wanted to see if you were paying attention. But this wasn't training. The first and the worst reading Leiberg got noticed was the data for the spacecraft's two main oxygen tanks. On his readout, tank number two, which held half the oxygen for the entire ship, had suddenly ceased to exist. The data had simply fallen to zero. George Bliss confirmed, We lost O2 tank 2 pressure. Leibergott scanned his screen and discovered more bad news. Okay, you guys, we've lost fuel cell 1 and 2 pressure. For an instant, Leibergott felt very sick. According to what he was hearing in his headset, seeing on his screen, most of the Odyssey power systems, not to mention half of its atmospheric system, had failed. The diagnosis was horrible, but it was by no means conclusive. It was possible that nothing had gone wrong with the equipment at all, and what was really broken were the sensors. Maybe they were spitting out faulty data that made it seem as if there was a problem. This did happen from time to time, and before jumping to conclusions, any good ECOM would exhaust the easy possibilities first. We may have an instrumentation problem, Flight, Liebergott said to Krantz. Let me add them up. Raj, Krantz responded. Up in their capsule, still rocking and shuddering, Lovell, Swigert, and Hayes couldn't hear this exchange, but their instrument panel indicated it might be true. Hayes pushed his way out of the tunnel and returned to his couch to check his electrical data and saw that Main Bus B appeared to have gotten better.
1: Okay, uh, right now, uh, Houston, the uh, voltage is is looking good. uh. And we had a pretty large bang associated with the um, caution and warning there. And as I recall, B was the one that uh, had a amp spike on it uh, once before.
2: Roger, Fred, Lousma said... Unruffled as if large bangs were commonplace during lunar missions. In
1: the interim here, uh, we're starting to uh, go ahead and button up the tunnel again. Roger.
2: The calmness in Lovell's voice belied the urgency with which this buttoning up procedure was taking place. Swigert unbuckled himself from his couch and dashed through the lower equipment bay and into the tunnel. All three astronauts were thinking the same thing. This was probably a meteor. Of all the possible disaster scenarios that astronauts and controllers consider in planning a mission, few were worse than a surprise hit by a rogue meteor. At speeds encountered in Earth orbit, A cosmic sand grain no more than a tenth of an inch across would strike a spacecraft with an energetic wallop equivalent to a bowling ball traveling at 60 miles per hour. The punch that was landing would be an invisible one, but it could be enough to rip a yawning hole in the spacecraft's skin, releasing in a single sigh the tiny pressure pockets needed to sustain life. Outside Earth's orbit, where speeds could be faster, the danger was even greater. When Apollo astronauts first began traveling to the moon, one thing they dreaded most, but spoke of least, was the sudden jolt, the sudden tremor, the sudden boot in the bulkhead that indicated a meteor strike. Since the command module seemed to be in reasonably good shape, it was likely that the lunar module had been hit. If that were true, they would need to close the hatch and seal the tunnel as quickly as possible to prevent what could be a rapidly depressurizing lander from sucking the oxygen out of the command module through the tunnel and releasing it into space. Swigert wrestled the hatch into place but could not get it locked down. He tried again and failed. He tried a third time and still couldn't make it work. Lovell floated into the tunnel, nudged Swigert out of the way and tried it himself. True enough, the hatch didn't seem to be able to lock. After a couple of attempts, he threw up his hands and put the problem aside. If the integrity of the limb had been compromised, the two craft would surely have depressurized by now. If there had been a meteor... It had evidently not damaged the crew compartments of either the limb or the command module. Forget the hatch, Lovell said to Swaggart. Let's just take it out and tie it down out of the way. Swaggart nodded, and Lovell returned to his couch to see if he could learn anything else from his instrument panel. Right away he had more good news for mission control. While the readings for Oxygen Tank two may have gone through the floor in Houston, they had gone through the roof in the spacecraft. On Lovell's instrument panel, the quantity needle for the tank was so high it was off the top of the scale. Though this was probably not a terribly precise reading, it was a lot closer to what the O2 level should have been than the empty signal that was showing up on the ECOM screens. Lovell reported this happy data to Lausma, who responded with a non committal Roger.
1: Uh, the on, uh see now in O2 uh, quantity 2, it uh, was oscillating uh, down around 20 to 60 percent. Now it's full-scale high again.
2: Roger. At the moment, Roger was about as specific as Lausma could afford to get, assuming this wasn't an instrumentation problem, as liebergot had suggested hopefully. Nothing going on in the spacecraft made much sense. Technically, a problem in the oxygen tank, a fuel cell, and a bus could all happen simultaneously, since the tanks fed O2 to the fuel cells, and the fuel cells in turn fed power to the bus. As a practical and statistical matter, however, it was extremely unlikely. The oxygen tanks were built with the fewest number of parts possible, making the likelihood of a breakdown as slim as possible. Even if one tank did fail, the other tank would still be more than adequate to power all three cells. And as long as all three cells were operating, both buses would continue operating too. The probability of any one of these components failing was down in the multi-multi-decimal places. The probability of one tank, two fuel cells, and one bus failing at the same time was off the numerical charts. Making matters worse, throughout the main room of mission control, other controllers were calling in other irregularities. An instant after the jolt that shook Odyssey, Bill Finner, the guidance officer, or Guido, came on the line to announce that he had detected a hardware restart aboard the ship this referred to the process by which an onboard computer would sense an undefined glitch brewing somewhere in the depths of the spacecraft take a sort of deep computer breath and set out on a data hunt to determine what had gone wrong in a ship with as many perplexing problems as odyssey currently had a hardware restart would not be unexpected however The computer seemed to believe that the source of the bang the crew reported lay somewhere within the ship rather than outside it. This appeared to rule out a meteor hit. But if it wasn't a space rock that shook the ship, what was it? Seconds after the bang, the Instrumentation and Communications officer had signed on the loop with a problem of his own. Flight, ENCO, he said. Go ENCO, Krantz responded. We switched to wide beam width about the time he had that problem. Okay, you say you went to wide beam there. Yes. See if you can correlate the times, Krantz said. Then for clarity and certainty, he repeated, get the time you went to wide beam, Enco. This was worth repeating, because the Enco had reported that when the mysterious jolt shook Odyssey The ship's radio had taken it upon itself to quit transmitting through its high-gain antenna and switch to four smaller, omnidirectional antennas mounted around the service module. A spacecraft's radio could no more arbitrarily change its own antennas than a television set should change its own channels. To some people at Mission Control, the antenna problem, at least, was actually a cause for relief. This had to be. An instrumentation problem. To have an oxygen tank, a fuel cell, and a bus all fail was unlikely enough, but to suggest that at the same time an antenna had begun switching stations was just too much. Gene Krantz, more than most, suspected this might be the case and signed on to the loop to probe Librigat. Sigh, what do you want to do? he asked. Have you got a six-sensor-type problem there, or what? Lausma was wondering the same thing, and severed his ground-to-air link long enough to ask Krantz, Is there any kind of lead we can give them? Are we looking at instrumentation, or have we got real problems? On the ECOM loop, there were doubts too. Librigat asked Sheiks, Larry, you don't believe that O2 tank pressure, do you? No, no, Sheiks answered. Manifold's good, environmental control system is good. Much of what fueled the controller's skepticism was that readouts up in Odyssey did not match those on the ground. After all, Lovell, Swigert, and Hayes had already made it clear that according to their data, the bus and the O2 tank were now fine. If the numbers weren't lining up, why believe the bad ones? Up in space, however, the rosy readings that drove these hopes now began to change. Hayes, who hadn't stopped scanning his instruments since the trouble started, caught a glimpse of his bus readouts, and his temporarily high spirits fell.
1: Yeah, we got a um, a main bus A undervolt now, too, Sean. Main A undervolt. It's reading about 25 and a half.
2: According to Odyssey's sensors, main bus B, which had appeared to have rallied, had crashed again. Worse than that, bus A's readings had begun to fall too. The sick bus, it seemed, was dragging the healthy one down with it. At the same time, Lovell looked over his oxygen tank and fuel cell readings and got even worse news. Oxygen tank 2, which a moment before had read full to bursting, was reading dry as a bone. And most disturbing, the fuel cell's readouts on Odyssey's instrument panel were now as poor as they were on Libragot's screens, with two of the three cells putting out no electricity at all. At the sight of this, Lovell began to realize he wasn't going to land on the moon. NASA had a lot of unbreakable rules when it came to lunar landings, and one of the most important ones was, if you don't have three good fuel cells, you don't go anywhere. Technically, one cell would probably be enough to do the job safely. But, when it came to something as fundamental as power, NASA liked to have plenty of cushion. And for NASA, even two cells weren't enough cushion. Lovell caught Swigert's and Hayes' attention and pointed to the fuel cell readings. He said, if these are real, the landing's off. Swigert started radioing the bad news down to Houston.
1: Yeah, we got a uh, main bus A undervolt now too, Sean. Main A undervolt reading about 25 and a half. I mean, reading zip right now. Okay, uh, Houston, I'm showing... Uh, I tried to reset, and uh, fuel cell 1 and 3 are both showing uh, gray flags, but they're both showing zip on the flows.
2: As bad as these developments were, they had yet another problem to contend with. Over 10 minutes after the initial bang, the spacecraft was still swaying and wobbling. Each time the command, service module, and attached lunar module moved, the thrusters would fire automatically to counteract the motion and try to stabilize the ships. But each time after they appeared to have succeeded, the ships would start lurching again, and the thrusters would resume their firing. Lovell took manual control over the attitude controller built into the console to the right of his seat and hoping that if the automatic systems couldn't bring the ship to heel, perhaps a pilot could. Lovell was concerned about keeping the spacecraft under control for more than aesthetic reasons. Apollo ships on the way to the moon did not simply fly straight and true. Rather, the ships rotated slowly to a 1 RPM top speed. This was known as the Passive Thermal Control, or PTC, position and was intended to keep the ships evenly barbecued all around, preventing one side from cooking in the glare of the unfiltered sun and the other side from frosting over in the deep freeze of shadowed space. The thruster convulsions of Apollo 13 had stopped the graceful PTC rotisserie mode, and unless Lovell could regain control, he faced the real danger of ultra-high and ultra-low temperatures seeping through the ship's skin and damaging sensitive equipment. But no matter how Lovell worked his manual thrusters, he could not seem to settle his spacecraft back down. Finally, Lovell gave up manual control and took a look out of the left window to see if he could determine what was going on out there. As soon as Lovell pressed his nose to the glass, his eyes caught a thin, white, gassy cloud surrounding his craft, crystallizing on contact with space and forming an iridescent halo that extended tenuously for miles in all directions. Now Lovell began to suspect he might be in deep, deep trouble, venting could never be dismissed as instrumentation. Venting could never be brushed away as bad data. Venting meant that something had breached the integrity of the craft and was slowly, perhaps fatally, bleeding its essence out into space. Lovell gazed at the glowing cloud. Then he had to tell Houston, where they were still checking their instrumentation and analyzing their readouts, that the answer did not lie in the data, but in a glowing cloud surrounding the alien ship.
1: And, uh, Jack, uh, our O2 uh, quantity number two tank is can zero. Did you get that? O2 quantity number two is zero. Um, that's AC, okay. Yeah, that's because of AC. And i was listening to looking out the uh, hatch that so we are bending something. Seven. We are. Uh, something out uh, into the uh, into space. Roger, we copy your venting. It's gas of some sort. Okay, can you tell us anything about the venting? Uh, okay. Where it's coming from? Uh, what window you see it at? It's coming out of window one right now,
2: Jack. And... The understated report from the spacecraft tore through mission control like a bullet. Apollo 13's problems were not instrumentation, And there would be no moon landing. The mission had become one of survival. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host. I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 266 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. Entitled Apollo 13, Houston, We've Had a Problem. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. Want to give a big shout out to all my long-time listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I am glad you're here. Since we last spoke, I have added some more episodes to the Archive podcast. So we now have episodes 1 through 83 available on iTunes, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. Just look for Space Rocket History Archive. Today, we salute my Shooting Star Emoji Donors. These donors have donated for five years in a row, and they receive a Shooting Star Emoji next to their name on the donor's page. Thank you, Shooting Star Donors, for staying involved in the podcast funding for so long. I appreciate it. Okay, I had several afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, I'll credit my sources. A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz. Apollo 13 Flight Journal. Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. The Johnson Space Center. The Internet Archive and Wikipedia. To his credit, Gene Krantz takes responsibility for spending 15 to 18 minutes to discover the problem Apollo 13 had wasn't instrumentation he believed that the mission control group would quickly find an instrumentation problem and fix it well i I don't think any other mission control team would have been any faster than gene's team and he doesn't try to pass the responsibility to anyone else so i find that a pretty admirable attitude about the situation and i don't think anybody could have done any better Now, in hindsight, we could say, why did it take the astronauts so long to look out the window? Well, the prime reason is because the odds were very slim that they were going to see anything. If you ignored the bang, it really did seem like an instrumentation problem at first. And remember, there was no side view mirror to check the service module. Maybe that would be an option on the Block 3 version of the command module. Retractable side view mirror, only $5 million. (laughs) But when Lovell saw that gas cloud growing out there, he knew that the landing was off, and he was beginning to realize that it was going to be a survival mission. In his book, he said, He felt strangely philosophical when he was looking at that venting. It was like it was the risk of the trade, the rules of the game, and all of that. He knew that his landing on the moon was never a sure thing until the footpads of the limb had settled into the lunar dust. But he was extremely disappointed for a long time, and who can blame him? I would be too. So, next week, Apollo 13 is in survival mode. Make sure you stick with us and download that episode. Okay, I have some pictures posted with the episode on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. We were pleased to receive eight donations to support the podcast over the past week. Graham M. from Sydney, Australia sent in another donation this year and moved to the Apollo level with rocket moon satellite and shooting star emojis. Shane P. from California donated at the Vostok level. Anthony G. pledged on Patreon and moved to the shuttle level. Andrew R. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Matt T. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Tony J. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. And Scott pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Thank you very much. We sincerely appreciate that. We have, as you know, entered the dog days of summer. <laughs> and we're trying to bite that dog before it bites us. So it's, it's good to see that we are now at 178 Patreon donors. That is a new high. The goal is to reach 218 by the end of the year. And the overall donors have reached 311 with a goal of reaching 418 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content here and have not donated yet in 2018, There's still time. Please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I'd depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going, especially during the dreaded dog days of summer. To support the podcast, go to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donor's page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have already donated for 2018, I certainly appreciate it. This week, it is a new official SRH logo magnet we are giving away. It is three inches in diameter, round, and will stick to most refrigerators. To select the winner, Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number. Then she put it in Google's random number generator and got the number for Jim Hayes. Jim Hayes, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell me your address, and I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to get episode 267 out by next Thursday. So long for now.